0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm delighted to have Martin Clark back on the program today. Martin is a retired circuit court judge from Patrick County, Virginia, and is the author of six novels, including Plain Heathen Mischief and The Jezebel Remedy. Today is the first of a two-part interview about his newest novel, The Plinko Bounce, which is published by Rare Bird Books. Martin, it's been about four years since we last spoke about your previous novel, The Substitution Order, and you've recently retired at that point. And to be honest, I was hoping that we might see a book a little bit more frequently than that.
1: And right off the bat, we start with A Gentle Chide, Uh, though it is good to be back. It's a positive.
0: I want to read your books.
1: Well, it's wonderful to be back. Thank you. I've been here, and and we were talking, I think, before we started recording a little bit. I've been here with all my books except the very first one. Mm -hmm. But I remain a slow pen, and I think that's because— after decades of writing the same way and having the same routine and ritual, and that was tied to my day job as a judge, I would get up in the morning, 5.30, 6 o'clock, and write for an hour. I told you on one of our interviews, my mentor and friend, Mr. Tom Wolfe, told me that if you write a page a day in a year, in 365 days, you will have written a novel. It's not quite that mechanical and formulaic, but that was sort of my template. And I've done that for so long... I get to the end of that hour and I have the sense of achievement, and it's as if all the juice is gone. So I'm no quicker.
0: So, what are you doing the rest of your days?
1: <laughs> <laughs> what do I do? I, it is, it's just really nice. I go to the gym, I fly fish like nobody's business. And right now, with the new book, I'm on the road. And book tour is fun now. In the old days, you and I would do an interview, I, I would go to the, maybe the bookstore. And then I would just not stick around. I would pack up and hustle down to Oxford or Jackson to Square Books or Lemuria. And and that was just a function of not having a lot of time uh, and having to get back to work. But the last book tour in this one, they'd been relaxed, been fun. Uh, I think my wife Dina was was here last time, and we went from basically Jackson, Mississippi, to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. So I found a fair amount of things to do, fly fishing yard work. And, and I still have to go into the courthouse maybe twice a month. I've not put a robe on since May of 19, but I do basic stuff that anybody can do. I, I sign orders and, you know, just formalities. Anyone could do it, but you still need to have judge at the end of your name.
0: Yeah, you should put a fly fishing in one of your books.
1: <laughs> so, so the, the, you know, great inside joke. Also, before we started, we started doing this for real, I was describing to Stephen this sort of interview process and what it's like, how refreshing it is to talk to someone who has read the book, understands literature, and is interested in the topic. And I pointed out that I had done an interview recently, and I I mentioned that I like Missoula and I like fly fishing. And the interviewer said, well, you know, you should – you ever think about incorporating any of that into (laughs) – One of your books and and my sort of flat response was, uh, yeah, this one, the the one that we're talking about today has a lengthy fly fishing section in it.
0: In reading the book, I could see you making allusions to your other books. Is that self-serving, you think? Not self-serving, but it was, you know, nice little Easter egg for us fans. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, Because you you do have the sub shop from the substitution order makes an appearance. Fly fishing in Montana, just like in plain heathen mischief, was there. And the LDS church and from the many aspects of mobile home living makes an appearance. Yeah. And I think there was like an insurance reference that maybe the Jezebel remedy was part of.
1: Well, Jezebel is about insurance, but that wasn't intentional. But but I'll claim it. Thanks for finding (laughs) it.
0: And I couldn't think of one for the legal limit.
1: No, no, I don't think there's no um, transfer from there, no Easter egg.
0: Now, you're with a new publisher, Rare Bird Books, and how's that going for you?
1: It's been a great fit. They are everything that I'm not. They are young, smart, hip, and eager and and hungry. It's been a really, really perfect fit. I did five books with Knopf. I'll use the Southside Virginia term. My friend and editor, Gary Fiskejohn, was let go. That's the way we say it in my part of the world. And Gary remains my friend. He is responsible for my career, and he made every single book I wrote better by a whole lot. And I don't know the details of why he left. I've not asked. But as I say, he remains my friend. He's mentioned in the acknowledgments of this book. I then worked with Sonny Maida until Sonny passed away. And I had a wonderful run there. My good friend Gabrielle Brooks remains there, but so many of the people that I work with, I guess vintage on the paperback side, and certainly the the people that I did work with directly are gone. And I decided on Rare Bird basically, as I said, because I just worry about at age 64 becoming hidebound. And you just do the same thing over and over. And And I thought it would be good to have different perspective and some different eyes on what I'm doing. The current marketing director there, I think she's maybe 24, 25, my editor, she's maybe around 30, as as best I can tell from everything I've seen. And, And this will give you an idea of why I think that was helpful to me. We were discussing the book and after her edits, and she said to me, there's a reference, Martin, a riff in the book, Smarter Than the Average Bear. And she says, what does that mean? Exactly. Does that mean we have a bear who can open a trash can with, with one hand, not two? I said, oh, no, it's Yogi Bear, smarter than the average bear, boo-boo. And the rejoinder was, if we keep heading in this direction, the only folks who will be reading your book will be folks at the rest home, and the only edition we'll need to do will be the large print edition. <laughs> and there seems to be an age cutoff, and I have asked people as I have made the rounds for the last month, and so many people have no idea what that reference is about. And that's just a tiny little vignette, but it gives you an idea, I think, of what it's like for someone to have new, fresh people tinkering around with what you do. And if, if you've read the book, you'll see that line change to smarter than the average criminal.
0: Yeah, but that has no fun to it.
1: Yeah, but I, I don't think you need to do rim shot after rim shot that doesn't hit. And I appreciated that. And that's just a small little thing. And you'll know this book is quicker. This is the quickest book in terms of pace that I've ever written. It's a tickle under, I think, 300 pages. And that comes from working with folks who just, let's not waste time on this. And Gary used to tell me, please remember you're not getting paid by the word, but for the right word. So it's been a good fit. And I think the thing I like most about Rare Bird is that my new boss, Tyson Cornell, started – in the business at the bottom. And, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just talking about in terms of sort of the, the industry pyramid. He was a bookseller at BookSoup in Los Angeles. And that's how he got his start. And that makes a big difference in how you tackle what I'm doing right now. He understands what it's like to be in that world. He is sympathetic to the extreme with writers. And he has just been a pleasure to work with. It is so interesting for me when I went to look him up, you've seen the publishing house pages with the men, a lot of bow ties, a lot of suits, a lot of tweed. The first picture I ever saw of Tyson, he's holding a guitar and he has tattoo sleeves. That's been a wonderful fit. He is smart, insightful. And when I say to him, Tyson, you know, I've been in the bookstore. I see all the stuff we send out. I see where it ends up. We're not breaking through. This is just commonplace. It's almost vexatious for people to receive this. He understands that. And so it works there almost from the bottom up, not the top down. That's in no way a backhanded slap at the really great folks I've worked with in the past who gave me better results than I deserve.
0: Well, but with a name like... Tyson Cornell, I thought I saw him in that picture of the Fran Chotone and Joan Fontaine back in the day. <laughs> it, it is a great name, isn't it? Talk about a reference that the kids won't get. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: Well, let's throw in a Kitty
0: Carlisle if we, if we if right. just, just, for, just for fun. What is my line? <laughs> also, do you have any fly rods that are younger than those people?
1: No, I'm not a guy who's into like bamboo and the old rods. I like state-of-the-art stuff. So I guess in that sense, they are younger. I mean, they're two and three years old. I'm not a traditionalist. I'll fish a foam fly. I will fish a bobber. And I love the rods that are state-of-the-art. Makes it easier for someone with not a lot of talent to cast. So I guess, yeah, all my rods are younger than the folks I work with. They're probably a year too two old.
0: Wow. Now, the protagonist of the new book is Andy Hughes, and he's done 17 long years. What was his crime? Well, his crime was
1: signing up to be a
0: public defender,
1: (laughs) and I say this every time that I come to visit you. We will soon talk about what is the book about, the so-called John Irving question, and we'll talk about themes and sub-themes and plot arcs, and I always say that I worry that when you do that or when I do it, it makes the writing or the book seem sort of didactic and ham-fisted and leaden and almost like you're reading a textbook. So I always begin by saying my books are about entertainment. My books are about having a good time. If you pay $28 for a hardback, you deserve a $28 ride or maybe a $50 ride. And I want to write about fun, engaging characters. I want to give you a plot that's intricate. And at the end, I want you to be surprised but not feel cheated. Anyone can crank in the deus ex machina at the end, the Perry Mason ending. But it only counts and it only resonates if you saw the clues in retrospect. And you don't feel cheated. And then maybe after making your way through that, maybe your perspective will be nudged or bumped just a little bit. So, you know, when I start talking about themes and characters, let's have that as the backdrop. But one of the themes in this book is Andy is a public defender. And this is a public defender's book. And one of the things that I hope to convey to folks is at least in my part of the world, at least in Southside, Virginia, the 21st Judicial Circuit of Patrick County, Henry County, and the city of Martinsville, the public defenders do a great job for their clients. I've said this a bunch. I don't know everybody who's in that office now, but when I left that office, I would let any lawyer in there represent me in any case. They are that good, but they're underappreciated. And I think maybe that's because when you get something for free, you tend to discount its value. And one of the the lines in the book is the line that we hear so often in court, you have a malcontent defendant, and he or she says, I'm going to hire a real lawyer. I'm going to get me a real lawyer. And the public defender you have is just doing great work for you for a fraction of the price that you would pay in the marketplace. So that's Andy's crime. He's been a public defender for 17 years, and he's burned out by the dockets, by the work, by the low pay, and by the lack of appreciation.
0: And it does take an extremely special type of person to sign up for that journey.
1: It really does. But if you think about this, if you translate it into maybe medical terms, and no surgery's routine, I get that. But if I need a basic surgery, let's say a hernia surgery, I don't need the head of neurosurgery at at, at Wake Forest Baptist University Hospital. I need a mechanic who does it day after day after day after day, again and again and again. And this is what I do. And that's what you're going to get with a public defender. They have one specialty. They're in the same courts with the same judges. They know the guidelines. They know the judges. They know the vibes. They know the rhythms. And they know their subject matter because it's not that big. And they're good at it. So,
0: And you show us that he's very good at his job and even though he's burned out he still puts in effort tell us about the uh, porter bowman case and uh, <laughs> how he got that resolved oh, oh
1: good. let me let me make sure that i can get it right because it's funny that we were talking again before before we started formally uh, recording this and, and and you were talking about authors who can't remember their work but this is sort of typical we have i think in every jurisdiction but especially in small towns in The new book, The Plinko Bounce, they're referred to as The Reliables. And you have a core group of folks. They have drinking issues, minor theft issues, minor fighting issues. They're sort of the town characters. And this book begins with poor Andy Hughes having to defend Porter Bowman, who's one of the Reliables, in front of a jury, which is a fairly complicated process, even if it's a minor case, for drunken public and littering. And as he says to the judge, I'm not really even sure why we had to do this other than the fact that the defendant, Porter, has nothing else to do, and really nothing's going to happen to him even if he loses. That's how the book begins. He has one of the reliables, Porter Bowman, and he is defending him in front of a jury for those two charges, and it's not giving away a whole lot to let folks know that he beats the case. And at the end of that, he spent a morning and all the time and the preparation. He is just looking at his feet. His laces are frayed. He's tired. And he says, oh, my Lord, I've done this for 17 years. Is this why I went to law school? Am I going to do this for the rest of my life? And he hits a wall.
0: He has something like 170 cases he's carrying.
1: A good recollection is always 177, actually. And, and that's true. I called when I was writing the book. I called uh, my friend Christina Slate at the PD's office, and I asked her how many cases do you have now? And she said 177. But yet, these are conscientious people. They do a good job. They focus on their cases. They're prepared, and people get good work from them. And understand, some of these are smaller cases. You could have an assault and battery or something like that. But most of these are felonies. Most of the stuff is serious, and they're 177, Mom. And they're they're certainly not going broke, but they're not paid what I guess people in the community would think of as lawyer money.
0: And it's not like he has grand designs. I mean, what he wants to do next is not this.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's very open-ended. He just wants to be happy. He's not sure what he wants to do. He, he's just burned out on his job. And I think that, especially coming out of the pandemic, is something that might hit a lot of different people. And you don't have to be a lawyer to sort of have done something for 10, 15, 20 years, and you just say, I'm 40 years old, I'm 45 years old, I'm tired, I'm weary. There's got to be something better. I don't know what it is. But it's, as you say, it's not this. And that's where he is in his, in his career.
0: And he does like his co-workers, and his boss, Vikram Kapil, is, in his own words, a good egg.
1: Vikram is a real person. As you know, a lot of times in my books, I include real people. And the reason I do that, I know that some authors, they have charity. Have you ever heard of this? Folks do charity raffles, mm-hmm. and you can buy the highest bidder gets to be a minor villain in the, in the new Stephen Usry book. I don't do it for that reason. I do it because a lot of people who read the book in my hometown and in the region where I live know the name. And so if you have a Sheriff Williams and and you read that, it's going to be jarring for you because that's not the sheriff's real name. And it's going to take you, I think, out of the story, and, and it becomes an impediment, and, it, and you say, "Oh, this isn't real. This is just fiction. This is just a story that's made up. But if you know the real person and you see that name and, and you come to it, it gives a certain credibility to what you're reading, and you don't get this sort of reality hiccup, and you just keep moving along. If you're reading the book in Michigan, if you're reading it in Los Angeles— It doesn't make any difference. It's just a name. So I use real people. And Vikram Kapil is a real lawyer, and he is every bit as good as he is portrayed in the book, and he is every bit as good a person as I suggest in the book. And interestingly enough, I have not seen Vikram since the book was published, and I understood he was coming to one of my sort of local events the other day and did not make it because he was held over in court. But he's a real person, a wonderful friend, and a wonderful
0: lawyer. Do you feel a bit freer to use real people now that you've retired?
1: No, it's no different. I've never attacked anyone despite Maybe a conversation that you and I had one time. I've never really attacked anyone that's real. If I mention you in the book, it's because I admire you and I like you. And sometimes the characters are sort of hybrid or composite. And folks around Patrick County will know who they are. And these are people who are always treated well, and I like them. For instance, Stephanie Cat or Cot—it's pronounced in, in the audio—is Stephanie Viperman, and she knows. Who she is, and she's a she was a great Commonwealth attorney she's a judge now she's a good friend, and everything I said about her in the book is true. She was smart, conscientious, and fair so there's some real folks in the book, and Vikram's one of them, but no one's ever mistreated could I could change that I could have a Stephen what do you think? Would you like to be a villain
0: i mean it's Kind of on the nose, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A diabolical villain. Uh, yeah,
1: I, I'll, 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 you won't just be your run of the mill villain. I, I'll do that. I really will. I'll. I'll uh, if I do another book, I'm, I'm 64. So I hope I. I hope I'm around to do another one. I hope I'm back in in Memphis visiting with you.
0: Well, and it wouldn't be the banality of evil. It'd be kind of the sloth of evil.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll I'll leave that to you. I'm, I'm not getting into that.
0: There's another character downtown by the name of Patches.
1: Oh, yeah. you got to have a dog, right? In my books, you have to have a dog.
0: The easiest way to make a character sympathetic, isn't
1: you said. Isn't it tr- it, it's such a throwaway and so easy, and, and just talk about cheating. You remember the last book, Nelson was the dog. Yeah, and the Nelson dog is rescued as the... a puppy out of the dumpster there at Substitution by uh, the protagonist. If you want to make somebody likable, give them a, a stray dog, and Patches fits the bill.
0: Now, is he named after the Clarence Carter song?
1: Wow! I just watched the. Uh, <laughs> here, here we go down a rabbit hole. I just watched the Muscle Shoals documentary. Have mm-hmm. you seen that? I haven't seen it. It is so good. I just recommend that to everyone. And 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 Doctor C. is Clarence Carter is is on there. I know him from his. And I don't know if this is a term in your
0: part of the world. Beach music is that? Mm-hmm. It's yeah, not. I've heard of beach music. It's, like it's Benny King and.
1: Well, it's more like Chairman of the Board. It's, it's And Benny King a little bit, but it's more it's the It's South Tams. Carolina yes, type stuff. Yes, it, it's South Carolina shag music.
0: I think and maybe the Soul Duo, were they from? They were What's from, that? Soul Duo, they were from Virginia. Now that, I've not heard of Soul. Late 60s. Well, most of these people were 60s, 70s. Mm-hmm.
1: But uh, Clarence Carter wrote Patches. And General Johnson, Norman Johnson, along with the Chairman of the Board, recorded it and won a Grammy, a legit straight-out Grammy. And uh, I knew General before he died. He's a wonderful man, incredibly talented person. And my friend um, Ken Knox is the last member of that group, and they're still touring and still playing. But not, not that Patches. <laughs> not, not that Patches. A long answer to get back to no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> as Andy is getting ready to quit, looking at the great unknown before him, as usual— As Colombo would say, just one more thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he gets an incredibly um, high-profile case with a defendant by the name of Damian Bullens, whose name alone I hope conjures up just evil. And Bullens has confessed to a violent, bloody, horrific murder. And this is sort of his last case on his way out the door. I don't think I'm stepping on my own foot. I I don't want to give away too much. But on the way out the door... He discovers there is a, an issue, a problem, a technical paperwork problem with the Commonwealth's case. Uh, Virginia's a Commonwealth state, so we refer to ourselves as the Commonwealth, not the state. And upon discovering this, you know, he reports it to Vikram and, and his plan to leave quickly and, 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 you know, with 30 days notice or 60 days, I can't remember w- w- what I wrote in the book, that is not going to work out for him.
0: Now, when Damien Bullens was a young man, he held promise. He
1: was a talented, really smart, gifted student and received a full ride to Duke. And Vikram, at one point, says that's his first mistake. (laughs) As the book says, people invested in him, tried to help him, tried to to give him guidance. And there was Damien 2.0, 5.0, Damien 7.0 until he just squandered every opportunity and and became a criminal and and a violent one and probably a sociopath.
0: He he started off with the penny-ante stuff, and just like with drugs, you need a little bit bigger hit, and he just progressed up the scale of horrible things.
1: One of the things, and I ask a number of people, including physicians and psychologists, it was difficult for me, and I don't know why this just popped in my head. it, It was sort of difficult for me as I was writing this. I had people explain to me again and again the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath. Maybe I should ask you.
0: <laughs> Sociopaths just don't have particularly any feelings Con, yeah, and any conscience. conscience. Behavior and actions are divorced, caring about any consequences. And psychopaths, I guess, have more of a violent bent to them. But you're Just, just looking, mad, looking mad men this. and
1: women, maybe? I don't know. But it, there, there seems to be a thin line. But anyway, I decided that Damien Bullens is a sociopath, a clinical sociopath, hard to say
0: sociopaths can be CEOs because (laughs) it—no, I'm I'm serious. I'm serious, too. Probably do a good job on it. There's been studies that they make really good CEOs because they can be dispassionate and not care about people. And psychopaths are actually out there to do harm. So the victim is Alicia Benson. She's married to a very wealthy man named Cole Benson. And even beyond their wealth, there are a couple of other reasons why this couple stands out in Patrick County, Virginia.
1: They are a, a mixed-race couple. Cole is a white Mormon, and he's very wealthy and influential in, in that community. And And his wife, Alicia, is African-American. And that would be, in, in rural Patrick County, Virginia, with I think our 18,000 folks, fairly uncommon.
0: And she's Mormon herself. She grew up in the cradle of the LDS Church in Nauvoo.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. She and her sister both have good things to say about the church and their upbringing and the family that basically adopted them and raised them. And she is married to Cole, and they have four children, four daughters. She is every good thing that you can be.
0: Well, and I remember in your first book, The Many Aspects of Mobile Home Living, the action moves to Salt Lake City, and they're going to the the big tabernacle there. Why does the LDS church kind of stick in your brain as people to use?
1: I'm not really sure. Other than this, we have a a fairly significant population in in my community, so I know them and I know a little more about them, and it makes it easier to access them and, and sort of their tenets and habits when I write about them, if that makes sense. I don't have to cut it from whole cloth. And also because in a certain sense, in a sort of an evangelical Christian world where I live they are seen as, as outsiders. And that's mentioned in the book, in fact. One of the characters mentions that.
0: Now, you hinted toward the paperwork problem yeah. in the case. And Andy is doing his due diligence, and he talks to the arresting officers, the investigator Melvin Ellis and Coy Hubbard. And these two fellows could not be more dissimilar.
1: And Melvin Ellis is is completely made up. There is no villainous He's not just, another
0: interviewer who gives you a hard time.
1: <laughs> that would be a an even better getting off point for the villain. Mel, Melvin Ellis is just a completely made up character, completely fictional. And Coy Hubbard is is sort of a composite of several real officers I know. David Hubbard was our sheriff. He was a farmer. I remember one time, and and there's a line or a little vignette in the book, and I remember he was the sheriff of Patrick County, and he's in his uniform, and he's a commanding. Robust man six, two, six, three, and a lot of applied strength. I mean, you're wrestling calves on a farm, and I just remember shaking his hand and seeing his broken fingernail and, the, and sort of the bruising and blood underneath, and that surfaced in this book, but he was so fundamentally honest and so conscientious and so concerned about doing the right thing. And there are police officers who just will not bend the rules. And he was one of those people and lived in Meta Zedan. The interviewer, Melvin Ellis, as I say, is just made up. And Melvin will bend the rules if he thinks it's called for. He will cheat to get the right outcome. He will cheat to make sure a murderer goes to jail. And that's the difference.
0: You have these positive references you make to people in there. And you speak so glowingly of almost everyone you've worked with. And when you say you had to create these bad people out of whole cloth, it makes me think you've had like some kind of charmed legal existence there. Oh, I, I,
1: I've had, I've met bad people. I, I don't know. I mean, as much a Renaissance man as you are, and as well read as you are, you probably have not heard of Dennis Stockton. There was a book written about Dennis Stockton in, in Virginia, and he was a capital murderer, and he was executed for killing I think the young man's name was Kenny Ardner. And just to make sure, maybe a calling card, maybe an ID issue. Before burying him, Dennis cut off his hands. And I met Dennis one time in an interview room in the old courthouse in Patrick County. And I had just read Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. And I remember Capote writing about Perry Smith's killer's eyes. And I just thought that was hyperbole. And I sat there and looked at Dennis Stockton, and I understood exactly What that means. If you've never seen it, I can't describe it for you. But I was in a small room with Dennis and we're talking about the murder. It was chilling. He was just a chilling criminal. He had no conscience and Dennis had no soul. You know, I've met those people and you certainly draw from folks like that. Dennis was nowhere near as verbal or articulate as Damian Bullins, but he was so cunning. He was smart. I've I've heard stories, I've seen court documents about how smart he was in his IQ, whether that's true or not, I don't know. And in fact, as sort of an Easter egg to, to use your term, late in the book in the Plinko balance, when the lawyers are having a conversation with the judge about how long the trial will take, Andy says, Hey, in Patrick County the Dennis Stockton case didn't take any time. We had the jury seated before noon. I called Dennis's lawyers. And I said, is that true? Ward Armstrong, a character from the last book, is actually Dennis Stockton's lawyer. And he says, oh, yeah, we had a jury seated by noon. And so I've met a lot of, of bad people, and I've seen a lot of shiftless, sorry people who who roll through the court. But it's certainly not been charmed. That's one of the reasons I'm glad I'm retired. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Martin Clark is the author of The Plinko Bounce, which is published by Rare Bird Books. Please join us next time as we conclude our conversation and talk about the state of the legal system as well. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.